Let's pray. Father God, we pray that as we gather around your word this morning, that you might speak to us, that we might hear what you have to say to us. May your word be good news, gospel in our ears. In Jesus' name, amen. A few years ago, I came across a book of the Times' 100 Greatest Sermons Ever. It was on another minister's bookshelves. And it was, it was, as the title suggests, a text of some of the greatest sermons preached in the Christian era. Shock horror there. Thankfully, and not surprisingly, number one was Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and it would have been a pretty bad show if it hadn't been. But very close to the top was one by a guy called Jonathan Edwards. Not, I should add, the former Olympic triple jumper, nor the former General Secretary of the Baptist Union. Now, this was an 18th century American evangelist. And his contribution was a sermon preached on July the 8th, 1741, called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. In what has perhaps become the most famous part of the sermon, Edward said, the God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. Wow. As powerfully visually descriptive oratory goes, it's certainly right up there. But there's a much more important question to ask of it. Is it true? Is God so dreadfully provoked that he looks on us as loathsome insects or hateful venomous serpents? Does God abhor sinners and view them as worthy of nothing else than to be cast into hellfire? Can God really not bear to look at us, the creation whom he loves? Elsewhere in the sermon, God is described as merciless in vengeance. Really? Many, it seems, would believe so, even amongst the faithful. I've mentioned to you how David Ford, a Cambridge professor of divinity, once asked a Catholic priest the most common problem he encountered in 20 years of hearing confession. With no hesitation, the priest replied, God. Very few parishioners this priest met behaved as if God was a God of love, forgiveness, gentleness and compassion. They see God as someone to cower before. Not as someone like Jesus, worthy of our trust. And I emphasize that someone like Jesus bit because it helps us get to the heart of the matter. 
So I want to ask you, does the God described in sinners in the hands of an angry God sound like Jesus? Does it sound remotely like the Jesus we encounter in Luke's gospel, who welcomes the woman who had led a sinful life as she washes his feet with her tears and dries them with her hair? Such a God might inspire terror, but such devotion? It sounds more like the God that's being pictured by Simon the Pharisee, who knows what wretched sinners we are and should really want nothing to do with us because of it. In recent weeks, we have been thinking about a more Christ-like God. We're asking the question of what's God like? And I've been suggesting if we want to know what God is like, we need to look at Jesus. Jesus told his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is the image of the invisible God or the exact representation of God. And three statements underpin everything I want to say in this series. That God is like Jesus, God has always been like Jesus, and God always will be like Jesus. God has been reaching out to us, trying to reveal himself to us down through the ages in many different ways. And even within the Bible, there are different, sometimes competing images of God. But the central one, the one to which all the others have to conform, was his son, Jesus, who took on flesh and dwelt among us. And last week we saw how the key image Jesus used to describe God was Father or Abba. But we also saw how this can lead to some distorted images of God. And I mentioned four common ones. And last week we looked at the first two. We considered the doting grandparent, the sort of sugary nice figure, whom we can wrap around our fingers, can be won over with a smile or a frown. But they're ultimately there just to do our bidding and they just gloss over any bad behaviour. And then we talked about the absentee parent who seems distant, disinterested, uninvolved, doesn't like to be disturbed. We saw that with the doting grandparent the risk, there's the risk of being spoiled, entitled, getting annoyed if God doesn't jump to attention. But with the absentee parent there's the opposite extreme of not asking for anything or expecting anything from God. Because that's the best way to avoid disappointment. Today we're turning to two alternative distorted pictures and they are the overly demanding parent and the Santa Claus blend. The overly demanding parent and the Santa Claus. And although I've come to a third, I would say that the overly demanding parent is probably the most dis common distortion we'll encounter. In many ways, it's the favoured image of those who want to belittle faith. You know, they, they, why are you worshipping a God who sets up rules we're never going to be able to keep and then punishes for failing to keep them? It's quite easy to be cynical about that kind of God. But it can be very potent amongst those, even amongst those really, who identify as Christians. They might use different imagery to describe it, but it's all the same thing really. 
Perhaps more common is the punitive judge, the, you know, the one that's always watching out for every slip up and always ready and waiting to punish the offender. But as a distortion of the image of Jesus offers of God as Father, the over-demanding parent works just as well. I remember a number of years ago an evangelist sharing with me how he'd been on holiday at a campsite. There was another family nearby with kids of a similar age to his own. And the two families would greet each other as they passed. Until one day they got talking and he mentioned his work as an evangelist. The husband of the other couple looked at his wife and said, I told you they were Christians. And it turned out this couple were too. But the evangelist said, how did you know? What gave away that we were Christians? And the answer came back, because of the way you disciplined your children. Which he admitted certainly wasn't the answer he was expecting or hoping for. But it is perhaps how many of us have grown up in, in the faith in particular. How, how we've come to see God. It's there in the prodigal son story, isn't it? We see it in the attitude of the elder brother when he refuses to come to the party. All these years I've slaved away for you and you've never thrown a party for me. You've never even given me a goat to show in my friends. There's an edge of resentment in there. I've been good and what, what, what does it get me? Whereas him, he's wasting his life away and you love him greatly. There is this resentment there. Grace sounds great, but there's part of us wants to earn our ways into God's good books. And we can resent God extending grace to others who we don't think deserve it. And often these are reflected in our own relationships, perhaps especially when we're growing up. You know, if acceptance or love was felt conditional on your behaviour, where even success can sometimes never be quite good enough. What do you mean you got 98%? Where did the other two go? You came second? Why not first? Where people don't hear the words, wow, well done, or I'm proud of you often enough. And you see it in church circles when we come to the communion table where a badly interpreted understanding of a passage in 1 Corinthians urges people to review every sin and decide whether they are worthy to eat at the communion table lest they eat and drink judgment on themselves. It's no wonder many live with this sense of not feeling worthy of the love and welcome of God. But it's hard to square with the God revealed in Jesus who shared table fellowship with all sorts. From the Pharisee in the Luke story to the tax collectors and sinners just a few chapters later. And if we live with this kind of distorted image of God, we end up tormenting ourselves with guilt. We put ourselves down. We we never measure up. We're never quite good enough. We could always be better. But does that image sound like Jesus? 
Because in Jesus, we don't encounter a God who kicks us when we're down and tells us that's where we deserve to be. Those who were faltering, stumbling, failing, they came to Jesus and found nothing but unfailing love, enduring mercy, forgiveness and welcome. Jesus' most stark and challenging words weren't for those who needed to get their act together, but for those who considered themselves too good to lean into God's grace. And perhaps you have lived with this sense of God, the overly demanding parent, for whom nothing's good enough. He's always demanding more. Jesus didn't come to put us down, but to lift us up. He didn't come to announce the condemnation of the Father, or even to save us from the condemnation of the Father. Jesus came to reveal the love of the Father and to let us know the unconditional assurance of his welcome when we turn to him. But there's one final image I want to turn to, which is not entirely different, but it's kind of a mix of the three that have gone before. And I'm, it's called the Santa Claus blend. Once a year, in normal times, one of the more fun things I get to do is the Christmas story with the preschool children and our toddler group. I actually missed that last year. I really did. You know, I gather around the nativity scene. It's about the same size as most of them. and I tell them the Christmas story. Well, there was one year as they were settling down, one of the kids was, whisper, was heard whispering to another, Shh, we're about to hear how Santa Claus was born. Which I find quite sweet and quite funny. But there is a more serious dimension to it. Because there is something of Santa Claus in the way many view God. In a way, it's kind of a mix of those previous three images. From the overly demanding parent, we get the legalistic, judgmental side of Santa Claus. Might wonder, eh? Well, he's the one that's making his list and checking it twice and trying to find out who's naughty or nice. Who's watching over our every move to the extent that he knows when we're sleeping and he knows when we're awake. So be good, for goodness sake. Be good if you've, or you've had it. Quite an anti-grace message when you think about it, isn't it? And there's also some of the doting grandad, because the kid kind of still knows that they're probably going to get what they want in the end. And really the only difference isn't on the behaviour, but Santa seems more generous to those who already have more to begin with. Again, quite anti-grace. But at the same time, he's a distant absentee, aloof figure who lives far, far away and only drops in once a year. And not when we're awake so he can spend time with us. He just drops presents and goes. How different to the God we encounter in Jesus who promises never to leave us nor forsake us and who is with us always. 
perhaps something in one or more of the images that we've considered over the last two weeks has resonated or jarred with you. Maybe you have recognised something of your own story or understanding there. And okay, some of the ways I've described things are quite stark. Perhaps it's not entirely where you're at. But there might be hints there. Perhaps our image of God can at times get distorted. What do we do about that? Well, when a taster wants to rid herself of a nasty taste in her mouth, what does she do? She cleanses her palate. And how do we do that? By turning our attention to Jesus. To immerse ourselves in the story of the one who made space for all. Including those who stumbled and fell, who got it wrong and who knew it. In fact, especially those who stumbled and fell and who got it wrong and knew it. The kind of love and devotion Jesus inspired in people like the woman in Luke's gospel who washed his feet with her tears and dried them with her hair, that couldn't be won through terror or coercion or threat. No, it was won by welcoming love and grace. Jesus didn't trample on the broken. He welcomed and restored them with grace. It's what he did so often. It's what he's known for. From the Samaritan woman at a well to a tax collector like Zacchaeus. From a leper to a woman caught in adultery. From a garrison demoniac to a thief dying on a cross. From people like me to people like you. Jesus came that we might know that God has room for us all. So as we move on and look more closely at Jesus, ask yourself, is my God like that, Jesus? I really hope you come to know that God doesn't abhor you or consider you as a loathsome insect or venomous snake. God loves you and considered you so precious that he sent Jesus into the world so that you might be drawn into his love. And whatever competing images we have of God, and there will be many, remember this, his decisive revelation is Jesus. God is like Jesus. God always has been like Jesus. And God always will be like Jesus. If your God doesn't look like Jesus, it's time to look for another God. So may you encounter this Christ-like God. May you be drawn into relationship with this God. And may you come to know how truly loved and welcomed you are. Grace and peace be with you. Amen.